Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lioness Origin Story podcast. My name is Sean Hall. I'm a director of programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the Veterans Breakfast Club on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh, welcome to VBC's third episode of Lioness The Origin Story. This is a special eight-part podcast where Lioness vets and those who know the history of the Lioness program discuss Taylor Sheridan's new show, Special Ops Lioness, through the lens of their experience. Joining me uh, again are filmmaker and writer Daria Summers and Army veteran Shannon Morgan, who's also an original Lioness. And we also have a special guest, which we'll get to in just a minute. Uh, in 2008, filmmaker and writer Daria Summers, along with her filmmaking colleague Meg McClagan, released Lioness, a feature-length documentary that revealed the history of a group of women support soldiers who went to Iraq in 2003 as mechanics, clerks, and engineers, but ended up serving as the original Lioness soldiers. Although the Lioness's mission was to defuse tensions with Iraqi women and children, they fought in some of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq War. Shannon Morgan was a member of that original group of Lioness soldiers, an army mechanic from Mena, Arkansas. She served in Ramadi from 2003 to 2004. During the 2004 battle for Ramadi, she was one of the group of Army Lioness soldiers attached to the two four Marines during house-to-house -house searches. That put her at the center of some of the fiercest street fighting of the war. Uh, I'm happy and, and very honored to be a part of this conversation today, and I'm going to hand it off here to Daria for episode three of our Lioness Origin Story podcast. How are you doing, Daria? I'm doing great, Sean, and thank you so much for the introduction. Hi, Shannon. Um, here we are on week three of our podcast already. Before we check in on the most recent episode of Special Ops Lioness, we have a special guest who's going to be able to clarify what so much of the press about on the TV show has either left out or gotten wrong, and that is the actual origin, the genesis of Team Lioness. And that special guest is retired U.S. Army uh, Colonel David Brinkley, whose career in service earned him a Bronze Star, a Meritorious Service Medal, and an Army Commendation Medal, among others. In 2003, he was the Battalion Commander of the 1st Engineer Battalion of the 1st Infantry Division in Ramadi, Iraq. Not only did my co-host Shannon Morgan serve under him, Colonel Brinkley is the one person who can tell us about the genesis of Team Lioness because he along with U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Richard Cabry, came up with the idea. They were, as they say in the Hamilton music, in the room where it happened. Um, so, hi, Dave. Welcome. And since I know your time is limited, let's just dive in. Please tell us uh, the story of the genesis of Team Lioness. How did it come about? Yeah, hey, and good morning, team. It's good to, to be here with you. And Dar Dari, it's good to it was good to catch up with you yesterday, and it's good to talk with Shannon because uh, norm normally we banter back and forth on Facebook. So, and uh, and Sean, thanks for hosting. I appreciate the invite. Um, yeah, so a little bit of background. Um, you know, I I was very fortunate and honored to command an Army combat engineer, and um, the structure in the Army at the time was you had a combat engineer at every you know what we would call them a maneuver brigade combat team so it's if you will it's like the fighting organization of the army um what typically happens in combat is one of the missions of a combat engineer battalion besides all the engineer battalion stuff is to uh, fight as infantry when required uh, and it's the only branch that actually has that caveat in its sort of basic mission set um, so, 
you know, we are trained to uh, fight as infantry and we are uh, equipped to fight as infantry. And we very frequently are used in that role. And, and to be frank, you know, even in our combat engineer mission, a lot of times to an outside observer, it's hard to uh, understand if is there, are those infantry or are they uh, engineers. So, you know, uh, and so I wanted to caveat that up front because at the time period we were in a flux in how the army organized itself. So three of my four companies were male only. So they were strictly the, the you know, what we would call the line companies, the, uh, you know, A, B, and C companies. They were 100% male. My headquarters company where Shannon served you know, uh, was open to women at the time. And, and it kind of created a, a challenge uh, in reference to the combat exclusion policy, because as an example, you know, those male only companies, you know, they are supported from the headquarters with things like mechanics and medics and signal people and, you know, chemical decon people and et cetera, which in many cases, just because of how things are assigned, were women. So we're constantly kind of in a little bit of a, an interesting situation where you had a male-only unit with a lot of augmentation from soldiers that were women. So kind of where the genesis of the whole lioness thing came is as we were being used in, I would call our infantry role, we would go out frequently uh, uh, to do search and attack missions aimed primarily at disrupting uh, the insurgents um, logistics train. Uh, so frankly, we're looking for those weapons caches, trying to get the ammunition, the artillery shells, the mines and et cetera off the street before they could be used in IEDs or shot at us or whatever. So that required us to spend a lot of time searching, uh, you know, the local villages in town and et cetera. Um, because of how we augmented our line companies with uh, support from the headquarters, it was pretty typical to have a, a platoon out on a mission. And where they started was they would have most of the medics would be women. And so when we went into the villages, we started, I started to notice a phenomenon where uh, whether it was at a checkpoint operation or we're actually searching, you know, a village or a neighborhood, um, when the local populace realized there was a woman there, it, it significantly uh, lowered the tension of the situation. And, and again, you can put yourself in the uh, in inhabitants kind of mindset for a minute. You know, all of a sudden, a bunch of heavily armed, big people with body armor and helmets and weapons festooned everywhere just come busting through your front door that creates tension i mean just put yourself in the reverse of that if somebody came through your front door like that um and uh and given the culture of of the iraqis you know they're very protective of of their women and their children and uh particularly with you know men that aren't in the family. So you, you can just put yourself in that searching people, making sure there's no weapons, you, you know, it creates a lot of issues. So, but we noticed when the we had a woman there, just usually a medic initially, 
that would de-stress. And so then the, you know, whichever, you know, you know, woman soldier was there, they could go through the, you know, the segregation of the genders, if you will, and things just would calm down because the Iraqi men did not have a problem with an American soldier alone with their women and children if it was a woman. They would get great consternation if it was a male. Um, the other thing we noticed is that once we kind of got everybody separated and we're going through our operations, the women <laughs> would tell our women all kinds of things that were good intel. Because frankly, from their perspective, they didn't want those weapons stored in their village and they really did not want their their sons, husbands, et cetera, brothers going out and fighting with us because that usually was a losing proposition for them. Uh, just the nature of how we're armed and et cetera. So, and so we, they would tell us, you know, what I would call actionable intelligence. It was very useful. Um, and so I was pondering this because, you know, we're in a little different reality now in, in, in Iraq because we kind of went in ready to do like, you know, army on army fighting. And, and there wasn't much of that by the time we got there at the sort of the back end of OIF-1. It was more of a contested peacekeeping, which really turned into an insurgency because, you know, we went there with one mission. Uh, it kind of evolved into another one. And uh, so as we're working with the populace, and, and I'll say up front, things that we know now that we didn't know then, you know, when we went into Iraq, in OIF-1, I, for one, and I don't think most of the Army, understood tribal network and how powerful the tribal structure was of Iraq. Um, and nor did we have uh, training on how to deal, like do civil military operations or deal with the population. I mean, we didn't even have interpreters initially. So, uh and then when we finally got interpreters, we really didn't have near enough to do the kind of missions we were expected. But we did notice this phenomena of that having women embedded with the combat organizations created opportunities for us to, to get weapons off the street, to get a better idea who the people we really wanted to target were, um, and to uh, de-escalate things. So. Um, so I was thinking about this one day, and, and, and you know, and, and, and Mike Cabry, who, for the record, also retired as a colonel, um, and I know his, his official thing is Richard Cabry, but he goes by Mike. Anyway, Mike and I are really old friends. We were old friends from multiple assignments before. We were both very happy to be stationed together as commanders, and so we were kind of confidants in each other. Uh, when we could kind of sit down and say, I don't really understand why this is happening. What do you think? Or here's what I'm seeing. What do you think? And we were having one of those sessions one night, just two of us, um, kind of at late evening chow or whatever, uh, kind of that fourth meal they serve for the people that have to work overnight, having a conversation uh, about this phenomena that I'd seen about, you know, how. Um, you know, the women being there was creating opportunities. Um, and and then Mike's battalion, he had no women at all. He was 100% male. 
And we got talking about it. He goes, I would like to capitalize on that same opportunity in my area of operation, which was a nasty little town that is Tamin, which was, a, if you will, a suburb of Vermont, if there is such a thing. And so, okay, well, how are we going to make that work? And, you know, because I started to, to put more women out uh, kind of in this engagement role than just with the normal support structure of the medics. So, you know, we had started to experiment with that a little bit. And, and I had a conversation with uh, with Kate Tendry, who was the, well, she's now Kate Katormanson, but she was the HHC, the headquarters commander, about, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And how do we make sure that, you know, these young women that we're sending out, that we're not trained for any of this, and you know, they're trained to be mechanics or, chemical specialist or medics or whatever, because I was also aware that, well, they have a day job, you know, if they're mechanics, you know, they need to be working on, you know, repairing vehicles, you know, if they're signal ears, they need to make sure we can talk and they're medics are supposed to be doing medical stuff. So when you pull them to do something else, kind of like we were pulled to fight as infantry, well then, so, so there's a, there's a risk there and there's a balance on that. You know, where do I, where do they need to be today? And I also wanted to make sure that who we were sending out on these things were, you know, mature enough, trained enough, uh, confident enough that they could do this weird mission, this new mission and this evolving mission as safely as we could make it. So, so we started to experiment. So anyway, Mike uh, was in the, well, I would like to, you know, I would like to have that opportunity, but I don't have women. So, you know, how do I, how do we ask you to support me with your soldiers? And, you know, we kind of were, you know, not joking around, but kind of, you know, a little humor, like, well, what are we going to, how are you going to ask for that? Because you can't go to the brigade operations to say, hey, tell first engineers to give me some girls. That's just not, you know, not going to go over well. And then I or, and I said, well, I'm not going to ever send one. I'm always going to send at least two, maybe more, depending on the mission uh, and the requirements. So we started banding around. Well, what do we call this organization? What what do we ask? What do I ask for? So then everybody knows what that means. And we padded around a bunch of names, and and you know, probably on our third or fourth cup of coffee, we came up with lioness because. At least in our minds, you know, I can go ask for a lioness team to support me from the engineer battalion. It, no different than I would go to the artillery battalion and say, I need you to support me with a fire support team. Uh, or I need to go to the uh, the support battalion and ask for a, an additional forward support maintenance team. So we came up with lioness because we thought it, one, it, it it defines that you know this is an all women organization, hence why it wasn't called the Lion Team. Um, that it kind of gave the right, I don't know, feel, you know, because lionesses are are very protective, they're very uh, fierce, particularly in what they do, and the pride, and it just seemed like it worked, and. Uh, and so that's what we did. We came up with the team lioness thing, probably, you know, somewhere between 11 and midnight one night, and it worked. 
and uh, you know it took off. So then when we said Linus and the and the brigade, and then ultimately when the first Marine Division came in with the Marines, they kind of knew what that was. And so that's how we organized for combat in this regard. And then you know it just sort of became a thing. Uh, I had an embed reporter from the um, Seattle Intelligencer, if memory serves me. And she got very interested in this, uh, and, and you know, did some reporting. You know, she was my embed reporter, if you will, while we were fighting. And uh, so anyway, and then it took off. And and really, from my perspective as the commander, you know, these young ladies just did phenomenal work in a very dangerous and volatile environment. But they just did great work. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm very fortunate that none of them got hurt doing it and uh, because there was a high potential for that. And that uh, and they just really did a great job. And I'm very proud of all of them uh, and I'm still proud of them to this day. But that's, that is where the term Team Lioness came from. Two tired lieutenant colonels drinking way too much coffee too late at night after a long day of missions trying to kind of figure out what we were going to do with this new capability. That's great. Um, I want my follow-up question to that um, in a, in a kind of a larger view, you, that was a boots on the ground uh, decision you needed to make uh, from your perspective to get to accomplish the mission. Um, but it, from a sort of a, a, a larger perspective, there was at what point during that, did you think, well, this it, there's a disconnect. In other words, there's the combat exclusion policy for women. And at what point did you think, well, we might be violating it, we might not, or did it not matter to you or occur to you? Oh, it occurred. I mean, I'd gone through this in a previous assignment. So the assignment before I came to the first engineers as commanders, I was the executive officer of the 20th engineer battalion at what was then Fort Hood, it's now known as Fort Cavazos, in the 1st Cavalry Division. And then I went on to be the Brigade S3 before I came to Fort Riley. Um, in that, that was the, in that, and when I was in the 20th engineers as a major, was the first time I had ever served with women in the unit I was in because the rest of my career, you know, was all combat engineer, male only, no, there were no women in the, in the organization. And that changed from the time I was a company commander in the late 80s to when I was back in a unit in the, uh, you know, in the late 90s. Uh, that changed, you know, over that time when I was doing other things in the Army. So, uh, and so, and, and just, I mean, a short, you know, war story, we had a young lieutenant in that battalion who was a superstar. I think she was probably one of the best lieutenants in the battalion, and she should have been, you know, if I'm looking at career development of future engineer company commanders, majors, battalion commanders, she should have had one of the line platoons, you know, the fighting platoons. But because of this combat exclusion thing, she had to stay at headquarters company and got to lead the, uh, the support platoon, which was kind of a teeny little platoon. and. It's a it's a valid requirement, and you need a support platoon. But you know, it, it just seemed to me to be a problem. And why? And I so I ask, 
why can't she, I mean, we're in peacetime, we're in garrison, nothing's going on. Why can't we give her a platoon and a company that's going to better prepare her to be a company commander in a couple of years? And everybody lost their minds. You know, you're going to go to jail, the world's coming to an end, dogs, you're sleeping with cats, you know, all that kind of, <laughs> you know, dystopian future. <laughs> and so I was basically told no. I was told no by my battalion commander, I was told no by the brigade commander, and I was told to shut up and call her. So I did. Um, so, okay, but I still got that in the back of my mind because my view is, okay, I didn't come up with this cockamamie organization, but it's the one I got to live with. Hmm. Because I'm kind of a, if you're capable and qualified, then you should be able to do the job. I don't really care what your background is, what you look like you know, or what your gender is. If you can do the job, you ought to have the opportunity to do the job. That's just me. Um, and I think it comes from always being in units that are undermanned and, you know, not exactly missions as they should have been or whatever. But, you know, Medica just been growing up basically with a single mother who's trying to raise four boys. So um, <laughs> the bottom line is, so now I'm in an opportunity where I can make the decisions. And so, you know, I, as, I, as I said in the documentary that you made, you know, I was given a set of tools to do the mission. And some of that was equipment. Some of it was weapons. It was mostly people. Some of those people were women. Most of those people were male or men. And so, but that's what I got to deal with. And so it just, I didn't think I had the luxury to go, I, uh, I'll give you a perfect example. I didn't have the luxury to say, I can't send the medics out with you, combat engineer platoon, 100% male, because they're women, because they need the medical support. Now, technically, the women shouldn't have been out with them. But then I go back to, well, then the women are assigned to the headquarters, which is where the medical platoon is. Why do I have a medical platoon is to provide medical support to my units that are out fighting. So to me, it would have been incorrigible to not put the women out there to do the job they're trained to do simply because they're women. And that's kind of where, in my view, the combat exclusion policy breaks down. Now, it, it was the law and it was the policy of the Department of Defense. And so just to be straight up on the record now that I think I'm past the point where I can be recalled to active duty for punishment purposes. Yeah, I knew I was violating. I mean, just to be honest, I knew I was violating the law, but I also knew that I was set up to do that by my own organizational structure. Hmm. And it's no different than, you know, if I had to send a mechanic team out to work on the equipment of that company where it was out in the field, that would have been mostly women um, because that's that's who I have to do that mission. So, you know, and then, and from them just doing their day jobs out there, uh, we again, we saw sort of how this worked. But, yeah, I knew I was I was I was potentially on thin ice. I actually started putting women in, in, in kind of men's jobs when we were still at Fort Riley. Uh my brigade commander said he was okay with it as long as we were in garrison and so i went okay and i just ran with it and then you know when we got into combat no one noticed and if they did notice they didn't really say much about it i mean 
I ended up putting a, a, a young uh, officer in a platoon because I was just out of men, you know, and she was very sharp, very confident. She was probably one of the first combat engineer platoon leaders that was a woman in a divisional combat engineer battalion. I don't know that for sure, but she did phenomenal. And, uh, you know, and, um, you know, I guess I got away with it. And not long after that, I mean, you know, things started to change because, I mean, I did, I did remember I, I was on the, on a mission one day and General Mattis, who at the time was the first Marine division commander, uh, called me on a radio and told me to meet him in the road. So I kind of went out there with some trepidation because usually when General Mattis told you to meet him in the road, he was going to fire you. So I was kind of thinking, did he fire me since I'm in the army or not? I don't know, but I went out there and he was kind of drilling me on whether I had women forward of the regimental rear boundary. And so I was scratching my head trying to help, you know, I didn't want to answer him and be, you know, side or sarcastic because you know he's a two-star and I'm a lieutenant colonel but I told him no sir I don't have any women any place they're not supposed to be because I couldn't define where the regimental rear boundary was to begin with since we were at a surrounded basically hmm. in Ramadi <laughs> and uh and as I we were having this conversation I really struck I don't think he noticed it but one of my armored vehicles drove by it was actually my armored personnel carrier that I had lent to my headquarters company commander for the mission. And so Kate Pendry came by in my hatch with all of her glorious red hair kind of flowing out the back of the combat vehicle helmet. While we were having this conversation about women forward of the regimental rear boundary, here comes a captain who happens to be a woman in an armored personnel carrier driving right by on the mission. So, you know, I was, you know, so again, I think I honored, answered him as honestly as possible since I didn't know where the regimental rear boundary was. It certainly yeah. couldn't be the Kuwait Iraqi border because there were all kind of women forward of that. And I really thought, again, since we're surrounded in Ramadi, I, I don't really, I, I couldn't define where that might be. So I just went on a lemon set. I didn't say yes or no. I just said, I don't have women anywhere they're not authorized to be. And and then he was okay, and he went his way, and I went my way. And, and uh, you know, and, and this all came back, all of this came back when I was kind of put in charge of gender integrating combat arms for the Army, you know, later in life after I'd retired and gone to work as a Department of the Army civilian. Some of the silly conversations we had about all of that going all the way back to the, yeah, she's really competent and she's probably the number one officer, but you can't put her there because of nothing she did. I mean, she's gone to all the training. She's done all the certification. She's 100% as good to do that job as any of the boys, but just because she's a girl, you can't. It just never made sense to me. And fortunately, now we're in a world where nobody has to make those hard decisions anymore because everything is open. And women can serve wherever they choose as long as they can meet the standards to serve in that MOS or that unit. And, and uh, it, you know, and that we've been doing that for going on 10 years now. And the Army seems to be doing okay.
I'll, I'll respond to a couple things you said there. Uh, first, I, I can't imagine a better comedic moment in a movie where you're talking to Madison on drives by the flowing red hair. That's that's hysterical. Yeah. Um, but it speaks to your leadership uh, and and the and the insight you have uh, to to recognize talent and uh, and I applaud you for for wanting to promote uh, talent and uh, and skill uh, and allowing that to flourish. Um, and you know, I think as a civilian myself, I think one of the things that we kind of hear that I'd love to debunk here is: Can you speak to uh, the effectiveness of the lionesses? Um, you know, we we don't quite know. You know, in a in a male sort of dominated field like the military, you know, when women are given more responsibility, we hear a bit about you know, is this effective? And since you had a sort of a frontline view on this, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I, I'll be straight up, it kind of depended on how effective they were, depended on who they were attached to, you know, and I'll explain how that was. So I think they were very effective supporting my operations, but, you know, then they were already my soldiers. So I like to think they were kind of inculcated into how we did business in the, in the diehard battalion. Um, I think when they were with 1st Battalion, 5th Artillery, you know, Cabri's unit, they did very well there too. Um, they uh, they probably would be assessed as less effective when they were with two four Marines because frankly the Marines took a dim view on the whole thing to begin with and actively did everything they could not to support it. And uh, our infantry battalion kind of had you know our one sixteen infantry had a little bit of a mixed uh effectiveness and i and i think it boils down to the uh to the leaders and kind of how they see this as an opportunity and then how they use that opportunity i found it very effective and i think you know mike Cabry would agree with me i found it super effective to kind of get into the headspace of the local population to get actionable intel. And every time we had something we could act on, that made our mission safer. Because I think we uh, we did a credible job of severely damaging the enemy's ability to get weapons and ammunition into the theater to shoot us with or blow us up. And why? Because we went after that where they would hide it and then what gave us a lot of insights on where they would hide it and what was there and who was the bad guys were the lionesses talking with the, the women of the wherever we were because they had a it was, it was almost like a natural bond of womanhood and 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 those iraqi women would tell my women soldiers things that they would never tell anybody else and then you would go, hey, and they would be like, hey, you might want to go look over in that hay bale. And look, there's like 15 mines in there, which we would not have found probably otherwise. And so that means that now those things aren't going to be laid and we're not going to drive over them and blow up. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, I, I saw a similar kind of effect in the Balkans when I was stationed there, where the women would uh, get, just get tired of all the silliness and they would they would roll out shopping carts full of weapons and ammunition. It just sort of placed it in the street when a NATO patrol would come by. 
because they were just tired of it being, you know, in their basement or, you know, worried about their, their, their men folk being found with this stuff they're not supposed to have. And, and I kind of saw a similar thing in Iraq where, you know, that, you know, these, they're not village elders, but they're, I would call them village matrons. They just don't want that stuff in their, uh, they just don't want it around them. And they, and they don't want their children to be exposed to it. And they don't want their, you know, again, like I said, they don't want their sons, husbands, and brothers out there using it and then, you know, coming back dead. Uh, and, and I think we were able to capitalize on that human factor a little bit as we better understood um, that we better understood the psyche of the local population uh, and what's we really weren't trained for. We kind of had to bumble into it. You know, we didn't have civil affairs support. We didn't have, you know, any of that. We were just trying to figure it out on the fly. And and the lionesses are a good example of where we figured it out on the fly. And I think it had a, I mean, again, I think it was the genesis of a big effect because not long after that, you got, you know, female engagement teams springing up everywhere. You've got, uh, special forces teams that are specifically asking for female augmentations of their team structure uh, for the same reasons. So you saw a huge growth in women and civil affairs. And I think that all speaks to how effective this original like origin story was, in my opinion, but it's just my opinion. Um, I just want to say, Dave, uh, that's, it's so wonderful to speak to you now. I know when we originally interviewed you, you were still uh, in in the military, and there are probably parameters about what you could and could not say. So hearing the General Mattis story is wonderful. And um, going into the specifics on the origin story uh, in this way is, is really important, I think, to uh, – get all that information out now. And I wanted to follow up, well, I really appreciate it. And I wanted to follow up with um, the question of, because now like on in, in so much of the press and a lot of it is uh, Marine, uh, Marine websites talking about how, you know, Team Linus, you know, sort of basically was their idea. I want to get back to what, was the attitude maybe you could um uh detail a little bit more of that the resistance uh when sort of the two four marines uh arrived in town but they were resistant but at the same time uh the linus teams did go out with them so it was like are you saying they knew they had to include them but they didn't really want to just haven't done the gender integration work with the marines they were a hundred percent against it. They had, they they did everything they could to prevent women going into combat arms, and I just you know, and it, particularly in their infantry formation. So, so you got that. And and I'll be and to be honest, our army infantry organizations were the same way when we started gender integration, and that's why I go back to the, I don't know that one sixteen infantry for the United States Army was is effective using the lionesses either. Well, I can confirm, um, Sean and uh, Dave, that, that the History Channel documentary that 
was in our documentary um, because there was only one and that was it. And they, it was really only a focus on, um, on the rings and uh, the, the lion team lioness not mentioned at all, which was, um, you know, disturbing. And it brings it back to um, this point. One of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is because, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, um, is that, you know, uh, just being in touch with um, the lionesses and Shannon, you can speak to this there, you know, with um, Taylor Sheridan's uh, TV show, Special Ops Lioness, there's, uh, there's some disturbance um, in terms of using that name uh, for a show uh, it, that just doesn't really represent, I mean, there's a long history and uh, a proud history uh, behind that name that's fairly recent um, and the women who served are still, you know, around and they went through a lot. And so there's, uh, there's kind of uh, a feeling of like, why are you using that name? And um, and I was just like wondering if you could speak to like how how you see that. Well, when I first heard about it coming up, I was like, oh, cool, but they're finally going to get their due. You know what I mean? All things being equal, uh, knowing that Hollywood's probably going to have a little bit of a work perspective on it, uh, and then to find out it was CIA, I was like, well. You know, maybe they adopted the program as well. Real world, I don't know if they did or didn't. It wouldn't surprise me if they did. Um, but, uh, you know, I've not watched the show, frankly. And so I really can't talk to how it looks on screen. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I, it's a little disappointing because I think, uh, I really think, you know, the nation needs to know what these soldiers did and how well they did it. But, you know, part of me says that, you know, there's a documentary coming out on the 761st Tank Battalion, which was an all black unit in uh, World War II that fought with distinction in Europe. You know, no one heard of them until just lately and that's been 70 years. So, you know, it's kind of like the Tuskegee Airmen, you know, until somebody took the time to Hey, hey, I know this was unpopular at the time uh, because we had all these prejudices or whatever. But look how well they did. And now we're just learning about it. So, you know, my view is, okay, it's been 20 years. So maybe we're starting to learn about it. Maybe there's an opportunity to, to kind of set the record straight and say, here's what really happened. Because I know the Marines did adopt this later and they went through a whole training thing and they built their own teams of women marines and, and you know so I, I think in the end the marines probably got it as well to the point where it was working as well as it did with the army you know um but uh you know to me i would like to get the origin story out there so people know you know these these young ladies had a difficult mission they fought with distinction you know, they did the nation proud with their service. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't be an afterthought of history. Right. I, That's my I, I agree. And I mean, I, and I also think that, um, and maybe because I was 
um, in the film, and we were documenting as much as we could of this origin story. Um, I do have uh, just the perspective of when we took the film up to Capitol Hill and, you know, people watched it. And Shannon, you remember you were up there, you spoke. <clears throat> Uh, you know, you you told your story along with Rainey and uh, 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 Stacy Breslow about your experiences and Rebecca Nava, um, and it it was a catalyst um, for change. And many other things, I think, just the experiences of women in this particular conflict, um, you know, all contributed. But the lioness story played a big role and ended up in some of the testimony to help change things. So it, it, it did change history in a way. Oh, I, I definitely think it did change history. I think it's important to, to start with what Colonel Brinkley said, you know, he didn't see a gender discretion. He seen us as soldiers. And if it was needed for a soldier to fit the bill for that job, he didn't care. And he believed in us and we're here today because of him, period. Him and Colonel Cabri for giving us that opportunity. Um, and then we just carried the fight on to, to DC where we wanted to enact policy change to, to back it up. And all of that was successful. And it's because we had leadership that believed in us, period. So I just wanna uh, end this by saying that of all the women uh, that I've spoken to who served under you, uh, Dave, when you were Colonel Brinkley of the 1st Engineer Battalion, everyone has just said your leadership made all the difference and that they felt safe, they felt acknowledged, respected uh, because of your leadership. And of all the different you know i've talked to leaders and colonels and in the marines and and i've never heard anyone uh spoken with by women with as much respect as you so i just thought you're probably getting uncomfortable with the compliment but i'm giving it to you anyway it's really impressive well thank you for that i mean it's i'm here smiling because uh you know, I, 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 as I see it, I was just doing my job. And to be honest with you, you know, I, I mean, Shannon had it right. I, I, you know, these are soldiers I had and um, my little understrength engineer battalion uh, to get after a pretty large mission. And, uh, and some of those soldiers were women and those women were, I mean, Shannon's a good example. She was a premier mechanic. I mean, and she was also, I will say, the best shot in the entire battalion. I mean, those 12 Bravos who are like all combat arms and this is what we do. She could shoot, you know, circles around, uh, which frankly made them uncomfortable uh, in a good way. But, um, but so then you go through, okay, Shannon, Soldier Shannon, what do we do with, with Specialist Morgan today? Uh, is... It, do I need her most uh, repairing a vehicle? You know, do we need her on the, the supply run to Baghdad because we need her skills on the machine gun? 
or do I need her out all night with whomever on the lioness mission? And because and it's just the calculus that goes into, you know, uh, it's the kind of a, the array of forces of here's the missions I have today. What's the best way to get after them with the least risk? And that kind of depends. That's where the soldiers go. So, and, you know, she did very well at all of that. And, you know, and so that's like three full-time jobs and one full-time day. So, and, you know, I could say that about all of them, you know, and Stacey Breslow was in communication. So if she was doing lioness, then somebody else was covering her in communications. And, you know, I could go on and on. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of gave Kate Pendry about three companies worth of work with one company headquarters to do. And again, they all did magnificent, but it, it, and so did my, you know, my other folks. And did I have some problems, soldiers? Yeah, everybody does. And so, okay, but how do you deal with that? What do you do? How do you make it better? How do you take care of your people? To me, that just kind of goes with the with the green tabs that you get to wear on your uniform as a as a commander. So, I appreciate the compliment, but you know. I, I kind of humbly just will tell you, I was just trying to do my job as best as I could with the folks that I had. And I was blessed with some really, really good folks. Well, I am so appreciative that we were able to uh, get you to join us today and, and, and really drill down on the origin story here, because I think it's important to put out. And, um, and I think that, um, the uh, especially as this show, uh, the uh, special ops line, this show is is now uh, is being seen on shown on on Paramount Plus. Uh, just to add, and while we are support supportive of women in Hollywood and roles and action roles uh, in whatever roles they want to do. Um, uh, we just want to counter it with uh, the actual history to make sure that the team lioness, the incarnations of them in the army, as they evolved into the Marines, the FETs, um, and whatever backdoor missions there were with the CIA, if there were any, they're probably not ones we're going to hear about. Um, I mean, we just want to get that history right. And you're a big part of that. I would say you're, you're the beginning of it. And so you can't really tell the history without talking to Colonel David Brinkley. So thank you so very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. I mean, the real hero is the your counterpart, you know, Shannon Morgan. So and her fellow lionesses, they're the heroes of all this. I'm just sort of a old bystander. <laughs> well, okay. I it all together, all of you, I'm just want helping to get all the voices out. And so you're right about Shannon, though. She's like um, amazing. And I've known her now for so many years, but, uh, and she continues to impress me, especially with her nonprofit, uh, Operation Lioness. So um, thank you very much. Okay. It was good talking with you guys too. So have a great one. And to our listeners, thank you for listening uh, to the podcast as we sort of move into the episode of Special Ops Lioness Episode 3. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation with Daria and Shannon. Um, but before we get to the episode, uh, Shannon, you know, 
We just heard some incredible history by Colonel Brinkley, and I, and I just wanted to give you some time here to sort of respond to you know his ideas, the the things that he was talking about, your involvement in it. Um, I'd I'd love to hear your your angle. Um, everything he said was so nice. I mean, it just speaks to his character um, as a leader and as a human being in general. Um, it's just so important, you know, in in military or civilian life. You, you, your leadership is crucial. If your leadership doesn't believe in you, then your mission's going to fail before it even starts. Um, Colonel Brinkley was an amazing commander. And like I said, um, basically it came down to he was given orders that he needed to fulfill. And it didn't matter to him whether you were a male or a female, if you could do the job that's what fell on your shoulders, not your gender identity in that situation. And a sort of follow-up question to uh, to that is, uh, he talked about what he saw was the women were getting actionable intel when they would talk with other women in the, you know, in these tribes. And, and I certainly, you know, listening to this, that's it's probably one of the most amazing things we have in common culturally is that I think the women in these tribes were like, we don't want our men and our children to be in danger. Please get this stuff out of here. And I just thought I would ask you, was this what you saw as a part of uh, the, the unit when you would go outside the wire? Absolutely. Um, the women, you know, women just, I think in general, teens, tend to be a little more keen on things sometimes and they realize very quickly um, if they covered for the for for the males for their husbands or sons or brothers or whoever it might be um, they realize that they put everybody in a situation and it also put them in a situation but when we were able to separate them and put them in different rooms um, separate from the husbands um, they were very forthcoming with information. They wanted, they wanted no part in the fighting and they wanted no part in harboring anyone. They would tell us where weapon caches were, like Colonel Brinkley said, possibly a hay bale right outside or maybe the cemetery right down the road. Um, we found lots of stuff in cemeteries. Uh, I think it was just invaluable to have that separation and the women instantly knew they wanted no part of that and they were really quick um to trust us because they knew we had everyone's best interests at heart we were just trying to clear out insurgents not everybody supported those insurgents what struck me about what colonel brinkley um was saying that i hadn't heard before because when i um when i originally interviewed him it was right at the start of our making of the documentary and he was still very much in the army and there were real limitations about what he had to say uh, what he, and what he could say to us. And, uh, but what I realize now is just listening to him is how necessary Shannon, Team Lioness really was. I mean, it was almost inevitable because your, the team lioness work there, like, was just valuable. And that's what I'm hearing from you. Without you guys, and just diffusing tension. And so a lot of attention is put on the attachment with the two four Marines and the, the street fighting. But 
beyond that, there was, you were really diffusing tensions and helping to uh, stop further fighting by getting intel and getting and, and helping these women sort of uh, get rid of all this, uh, uh, the arms and bombs and whatnot. Yeah, um, we we diffuse tensions in multiple ways, and not only were we trying to diffuse uh, all that with the uh, local Iraqi people, um, like Colonel Brinkley spoke on, the Marines most certainly did not want us. They did not want to be responsible for us. They didn't want us attached to their infantry units, um, and it goes to speak on a lot of things, but... Uh, so not only were we diffusing tensions with the Iraqi people, we're also diffusing tensions with our Marine counterparts at the same time. And that's really kind of having your, I mean, that's, that's not caught between a rock and a hard space. I don't know what is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely glad to see that things have changed now that, uh, the world continued to move forward because, uh, I do feel like we were definitely crucial pieces. We were we were instruments in helping keep the peacekeeping missions peaceful. <laughs> that well, exactly. weren't always peacekeeping missions. <laughs> no, uh, and and again, I mean, it's important. A, a lot of discussion has been around the fighting and the and 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 and, and you know. The contributions, you know, and your your participation in that, and and against the combat exclusion policy. But um, what's really becoming clear is the role you played in diffusing tensions and and helping to avert certain conflicts. And I think that's equally important because in the end, nobody wants to fight. <laughs> you can do it without fighting and just. Uh, diffuse tensions and find uh, uh, resolutions, you know, with the least amount of trauma, well, that's the best outcome. So I think that's just Absolutely. an important, and I think that's a good segue into talking about episode three, uh, the title, Bruise Like a Fist. Um, uh, and this is the third episode. It's written by Taylor Sheridan, and this time it's directed by Anthony Burns. So I have a lot of thoughts about this episode. What what did you think, Shannon? Um, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, this episode, I feel like they're giving more, like, detail as to what her mission entails and everything she has to go through and being quick and thinking on the fly. I think that also plays into what we went through. A lot of times there were no rule books. There were no uh, instructions prior to. We had to do a lot of thinking on the fly a lot of times. Um, and, then right. later, and then later on, you know, they, they made sure to go back and, and fix that recourse. So it would never happen again. But I think this episode was interesting, to say the least. Right. I was really um, struck by the fact that, you know, she's driving to, uh, Cruz is driving to Chesapeake Bay, and Joe's on the phone with her, and 
they're still figuring out, well, what's your identity? And Cruz wants to say she's a student, but clearly that's not going to play out because if she's an English student, she doesn't, you know, according to uh, when Joe asks her, you know, what books would you, could you talk about? She's not prepared and she doesn't know about enough about art to pull that off. Um, so, and, and I do, I did uh, like the revelation in the, um, I guess they're back in the Washington restaurant where Joe, Zoe Saldana is having, I guess, coffee or lunch with uh, uh, Caitlin and Nicole Kidman character. And because in that scene, it's basically uh, Caitlin's intuition that drives that scene because she's she sees that Joe has some concern, something about maybe something not being quite right. And then we find out that um, Joe says that uh, Aaliyah has actually more money and more connections. And somehow that's making her, Joe, suspicious about what what have they really sent Cruz into. I don't know if anybody else picked up on that, but that was my take that Nicole Kidman is, is her relationship with Joe is very intuitive. She's just always probing her. Right. I, and I think a couple of those scenes track to real world interactions, Daria, because, you know, if you've noticed, like the last couple episodes, you know, here's Cruz getting thrown into these missions on the fly, last minute, not really knowing exactly what to do, not a ton of preparation. But I'll be damned. In the end, she pulls it off. Well, imagine that. Well, good God, that's a little bit like Lioness now, isn't it? It is exactly. I, I totally <laughs> see the parallel. And, um, you know, she's in, she, thrown into it, and, and she's rising to the occasion. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that speaks on women's ability to uh, overcome and adapt at any cost. I mean women are phenomenal creatures uh, i'll second that um and i just i thought it was really funny outside the restaurant when uh i guess she's um i guess that guy kyle the special ops guy and 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 joe just looks at him and says hey i'm late for soul cycle i'm late for my soul cycle class because i feel like that's the one like um urban kind of uh you know my fitness routine, luxury, taking care of myself that, um, and it's a, all genders can go to soul cycle, but it's just one that I thought, oh, wow, they're trying to sort of like, she's caring for herself in a way. And we haven't seen anything like that before, but I thought it was funny because soul cycle symbolizes so much. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Sean? Um, well, I'll certainly third that, that women are phenomenal. Um, <laughs> should it, it if I if I do may say so um my wife especially but uh I, I thought that was interesting that we sort of took a diversion uh from Cruz's story and and had a little bit more time with Zoe's team that her team was split in half due to that conversation she had outside the restaurant um and they went to do an extraction and you you kind of feel like why are we seeing this they you know it was a sort of a big action sequence you know they they get the the target that they're looking for um, are we seeing this simply to see the effectiveness of her team, or are we seeing this because the you know the person uh, that they were extracting is going to take part later 
Um, or are we seeing it because we needed to see how effective Zoe was with a, with a minimalized team? Um, it, you know, there's some detours in the series that I sort of perk up and say, why are we seeing this right now? What's the purpose of, of us noticing this? Because they could have just said, hey, the, you guys are needed. Off they go. And we don't see them until they get back from the extraction. We hear it went successfully. Uh, but we do get a long sequence of, of that particular extraction. And is it just because we wanted to add some action into it, uh, you know, to sort of um, be the opposite of Cruz's very dialogue heavy part in this episode of her being embedded finally and her developing this relationship, which I, I will say on the side, her developing relationship with Aaliyah seems forced to me. And I don't know if that feels the same way to both of you. I'm just speaking from like a viewer standpoint it, that they sort of met in Kuwait and suddenly they developed this really strong friendship and now she's hanging out with them and she's being introduced to the whole group. And there was almost like, wouldn't they understand that there's a vetting process? Zoe on their side, the team, they're saying, do they know about us? How are we going to get her in there? Where are we going to place the mics? You know, they're, they're definitely scanning her phone. And there's this whole idea of like, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out if anybody is being embedded with them. But you see Zoe, uh, you see, um, sorry, you see Lazeless character Cruz sort of embed with them pretty easily and be, ex and, and be a, you know, a part of this. And, and I don't know if that feels forced to you as well. Well, I think you bring up two good points, Sean, because I too felt that this this episode starts to reveal what I saw not only the the um the sort of just a subplot with the extraction, but then there's the additional uh subplot um with Caitlin uh at home with her husband and something's going on there because mm -hmm. Uh, and so I kind of see those were parallel. They're both, they, they're, they're going to have to feed back into the main plot, to the main story. I mean, I think those things are both being set up and the whole thing, the plot's thickening, so to speak. But, um, when, uh, Caitlin is with her, with her husband and he says, you know, they're talking about the OPEC and this one, um, I think it's Kudro oil. And he says, you know, don't poke the bear. He clearly knows enough about what she's doing and he's kind of warning her. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, I do feel that, uh, you know, it was Cruz got Cruz and Aaliyah formed a friendship very easily. And I felt like maybe they, they just wanted to motor past that. Mm. Like if they had, 10, 10 episodes, maybe they could have spent more time on it because, but they just, it, I mean, it does really happen so fast. So I do agree that there's, there is a forced quality to it. It just happens. And I guess, you know, mostly that you just have to say, well, that seems easy, <laughs> given that the entire operation hinges on them forming some kind of a bond so that crews can get in. Exactly. And, and if you don't mind, I'd like to, to speak on what you were just talking about. Um, I think I think that some of these scenes um, shows the dynamics of our roles in the military. Um, you may be assigned, like, uh, to speak on what Colonel Brinkley was speaking on earlier. You may be assigned, like I was assigned as a track mechanic, but that's not where my role started or ended. Um, I was I had three full-time jobs, just like he said. Um, had to decide what day, what mission I was going to be on. Was I going to be a mechanic? Was I going to be a lioness? Was I going to be a gunner um, on uh, a support run? I mean, um, 
and it it just goes to show that like in special ops lioness where half of the team ends up going to work a sidebar mission in the middle of cruises mission that's that's literally how everything goes down um we're pulled into different roles you may or may not be prepared for um and it just goes to show that you can split the team and still be effective and it even capitalizes more on Joe's role as a leader um, and they were all wanting to pull her out and you just have to have trust and believe in your soldier. Well, I think um, Shannon, your point is, is very pertinent to the scene. I get exactly what you're saying because it's really pertinent to the scene where uh, when um, Cruz is going to get into her bathing suit and then Aaliyah sees her and calls in the doctor and the team is watching this because everybody's surveilling everybody, um, but the team is watching this. And ironically, the bruises that the doctor examines uh, were caused by Joe's putting crews through the grinder, so to speak, to see what her capacity was before she would break. So um, it it's really Cruz who has to really think, and that's where exactly where she was thinking on her feet and comes up with this story mm -hmm. about the abusive boyfriend, which ironically is actually true because that's how it all starts out. Right. Why she, she did probably have emotion and sell it because she actually lived it. That's right. And so, but I, there is, I thought <clears throat> the, it, it was a pretty amazing scene um, uh, and trying to figure out what it all meant at the beach with uh, Cruz and uh, Aaliyah. I guess everyone else uh, at, from the mansion goes out to dinner and the two of them are sitting on the beach. And I was wondering how, um, what interpretation uh, Sean or Shannon you saw in, in this, because Aaliyah is saying, it's funny how these images in our minds uh, there's no recreating them. They are only for the mind, no matter how hard we try. And I, and I feel like her, she's saying something about, you know, what you think is going on, you know, or what you wish for, or what you imagine, isn't really what's going on, or, or is that's not how the world is going to be. That's not what's going to, that's not reality. And I feel like that's injecting this idea of what does Aaliyah know and what doesn't she know? Because then at the end, she says, um, Cruz asks her if really probably referring to her father, do they choose your friends? And she says, they choose it all. Anyway, that made me feel very like, wow, Cruz is really in a difficult situation. Absolutely. It's like her whole life laid out for her um, by design without any uh, input from her uh, eerily familiar. Right, because I, I don't know, that made me wonder about where Aaliyah's, uh, what side is she on? Is she on a side? Does she have a mission? Did you have a feeling about that, Sean? I like the character development in that particular scene. You know, we haven't had much real personal time with Aaliyah. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, the, the friends mentioned earlier, like her taking on Cruz as a, as a reclamation project, you know, she should get a, a dog instead, you know, but uh, this is a, a great way for Aaliyah to open up and, and, and connect with somebody about her life and what she's experiencing and, and 
having choices taken away from her. She even mentions in that scene that, you know, all of all of the rules of the Middle East and and Shannon, you certainly can speak to seeing the rules that women deal with in the Middle East as opposed to here in America. Um, you know, and I, I thought it was I thought it was one of the better scenes so far between Cruz and Aaliyah, uh, certainly. Um, just to just to kind of get an idea of life experience and and history. Absolutely. I think it was an in inclination into her thought process too, and how um, women's thought processes continue to evolve. And we're seeing more women, just like um, Colonel Brinkley mentioned, women can serve in any capacity as long as they can pass the same standard test now. Um, I think that's, it, it, that speaks on uh, Aaliyah's character and maybe more uh, forward thinking. Uh, like when I was in Iraq, um, there are so many things, it's so, I almost, like I fought, like I, I felt like I was fighting a war, but I also felt like I was fighting for these women secretly, whether they knew it or not, you know, because I, I would watch every single day how mistreated they are. Um, they spend, they spend all day cooking these meals and they spend all day working the fields and, and, and they, they cook for all these men and the women are not allowed to eat with the men. They only get to eat what is left over. I mean, that's what I've seen time and time again. Um, women cannot walk side by side with their husbands. They have to walk behind them. It's just a way um, to me, like to bring some more forward thinking into it because women are treated absolutely horrible over there. And I understand that that's their religion and the way of doing things. And I'm not trying to undo anything, but at the same time, I was also trying to liberate them in some small way at the same time. Um, you know, sometimes it just takes one one thought to change the world. Wow, Shannon, that's that's a really, um, I haven't heard you speak so directly to that aspect of your time over there. And um, I'm, you're really making a lot of great points. And, uh, you know, I see it and it really, it, it moves me to hear you say that. Well, every time we went into a home and we've seen uh, a, a woman crammed into what would be like a coat closet, and that was the place that she was sleeping, while everyone else, it just, it broke my heart. I mean, and I think also speaks to these women being like, oh my gosh, it's okay. We can speak up and we can talk and we can tell these other women things that are happening. Um, I think we also gave them a little bit of uh, courage, if you will, to, to feel like they had a voice and to feel like they could speak. And whether or not the men agreed with it or didn't agree with it didn't matter because we had them separated and they were safe and they could finally use their voices. I think that's key. Right. And I, again, I just... I love hearing you say that because I think, again, it brings up another aspect of the lioness missions. Again, it's not as much, it's not about the combat. It's about uh, the interpersonal relationships and just being Absolutely. there with men and sort of that pathway, that kind of connection, that relationship 
um, you know, potentially has uh, positive implications for the mission and for just the relations. So we're going to see where this leads. And there was a sort of a side uh, that one of the friends, um, a male, tried to sort of come on to cruise. She quickly dealt with that. It's something that I think character-wise, we just, you know, again, we needed to see that Cruz is capable of taking care of herself. Uh, she quickly handled that. But what we also saw in that scene was that he came to her room and tried to barge into her room, but that security at this mansion that she is embedded in uh, intervened and took him and sent him away. And then from this, Aaliyah's husband says, we're going we're gonna to go, and they are hopping on a plane, and that's pretty much the end of the episode of where are we going and where's Cruz going? And now Joe needs to get her team together and follow. That's right. And um, I, I just want to say that <clears throat> I think after, after that scene in the mansion where um, I don't even know that I remember that character's name, Sam, maybe, um, who tried to uh, sort of break into Cruz's room, you know, it kind of mirrors um, it, or when that little scene where Joe arrives home and her teenage daughter is making out with her boyfriend on the sofa mm -hmm. and and she really does not take that well and um really uh sort of <laughs> if i were that boy i would have been extremely afraid <laughs> no wonder he left the house right away and um and then it just because to me one of the things that were is going to have to be resolved is somehow because when when Joe goes out to talk to her husband, who is busy um, on on a Zoom, some kind of a Zoom call about a, a surgical operation, and she says, "Well, what are the rules?" and and he's like, "Well, I, you aren't here. I I can't talk to you about the rules. We just make them up because you're not you're not part of it, basically." And so it's a bit of a crushing moment, um, but uh, that they sneak in there and just I I just like to note the mirroring. Um, but then it all does end up and and at the end of the episode Cruz is really now she's on her own and <clears throat> you do feel that uh you know it's going to be a tough situation for her cuz she's you know you don't we don't really know where she's going i think they're doing a great job of leaving us cliffhangers so if if you were to wait till the entire series comes out and you you know you're going to want to binge because they're leaving us questions at the end of every episode and 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 leaving breadcrumbs throughout each episode to give us an idea of like where is this going where is this relationship headed how is this going to develop um it speaks to the the talent of the writers and the and the direction of the series and you know the obviously the talent of the the actors involved um that you are you're i don't say necessarily on the edge of your seat but certainly i'm being entertained um you know and i'm and i'm enjoying uh this podcast in particular simply because we're getting so much more um in-depth history uh on all these themes and ideas that are being placed throughout special ops lioness um but I'm excited for our, our next episode, episode four of the podcast, as well as Special Ops Linus, episode four. I would say the script is really leaving uh, page turners here for us. So, um, I, yeah, I found the the last scene with the plane taking off just kind of like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? So everyone will just have to tune in and we'll discuss it in our next podcast. Yeah, I can't wait.
And to our listeners, uh, if you're just finding the Lioness Origin Story podcast here, uh, please check out our first two episodes that recap episodes one and two of Special Ops Lioness. We are now on YouTube, so you can go onto there. You can subscribe to that podcast channel on YouTube and listen there if that's where you would like to. Uh, you can like, you can subscribe. Uh, we'd love any interaction. You can email me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts or comments that you have uh, about the lioness history uh, or questions you may have for Daria or Shannon. So thank you so much for listening. and We'll look forward to the next episode. Absolutely. So thank you, Sean, and thank you, Shannon. Thank you, guys. Y'all have a good day. I appreciate it.